Part five being Book One, Chapter Six of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book One. Chapter Six, the Tezcucans, their golden age, accomplished princes, decline of their monarchy. The reader would gather but an imperfect notion of the civilization of Anahuac without some account of the Acolowans or Tezcucans, as they are usually called, a nation of the same great family with the Aztecs, whom they rivalled in power and surpassed in intellectual culture and the arts of social refinement. Fortunately, we have ample materials for this in the records left by Ishlil Xochitl, a lineal descendant of the royal line of Tezcuco, who flourished in the century of the conquest. With every opportunity for information, he combined much industry and talent, and if his narrative bears the high colouring of one who would revive the faded glories of an ancient but dilapidated house, he has been uniformly commended for his fairness and integrity, and has been followed without misgiving by such Spanish writers as could have access to his manuscripts. I shall confine myself to the prominent features of the two reigns which may be said to embrace the golden age of Tezcuco, without attempting to weigh the probability of the details, which I will leave to be settled by the reader, according to the measure of his faith. The Acolowans came into the valley, as we have seen, about the close of the twelfth century, and built their capital of Tezcuco on the eastern borders of the lake, opposite to Mexico. From this point they gradually spread themselves over the northern portion of Anahuac, when their career was checked by an invasion of a kindred race, the Tepanics, who after a desperate struggle succeeded in taking their city, slaying their monarch, and entirely subjugating his kingdom. This event took place about 1418, and the young prince, Nezahualcoyotl, the heir to the crown, then fifteen years old, saw his father butchered before his eyes, while he himself lay concealed among the friendly branches of a tree which overshadowed the spot. His subsequent history is full of romantic daring and perilous escapes. Not long after his flight from the field of his father's blood, the Tezcucan prince fell into the hands of his enemy, was borne off in triumph to his city, and was thrown into a dungeon. He effected his escape, however, through the connivance of the governor of the fortress, an old servant of his family, who took the place of the royal fugitive, and paid for his loyalty with his life. He was at length permitted, through the intercession of the reigning family in Mexico, which was allied to him, to retire to that capital, and subsequently to his own, where he found a shelter in his ancestral palace. Here he remained unmolested for eight years, pursuing his studies under an old preceptor, who had had the care of his early youth, and who instructed him in the various duties befitting his princely station. At the end of this period the Tepanic usurper died, bequeathing his empire to his son, Mashtla, a man of fierce and suspicious temper. 
Nezahualcoyotl hastened to pay his obeisance to him on his accession, but the tyrant refused to receive the little present of flowers which he laid at his feet, and turned his back on him in presence of his chieftains. One of his attendants, friendly to the young prince, admonished him to provide for his own safety by withdrawing as speedily as possible from the palace where his life was in danger. He lost no time, consequently, in retreating from the inhospitable court, and returned to Tezcuco. Mashtla, however, was bent on his destruction. He saw with jealous eye the opening talents and popular manners of his rival, and the favour he was daily winning from his ancient subjects. He accordingly laid a plan for making away with him at an evening entertainment. It was defeated by the vigilance of the prince's tutor, who contrived to mislead the assassins, and to substitute another victim in the place of his pupil. The baffled tyrant now threw off all disguise, and sent a strong party of soldiers to Tezcuco, with orders to enter the palace, seize the person of Nesahualcoyotl, and slay him on the spot. The prince, who became acquainted with the plot through the watchfulness of his preceptor, instead of flying, as he was counselled, resolved to await his enemy. They found him playing at ball when they arrived, in the court of his palace. He received them courteously, and invited them in, to take some refreshment after their journey. While they were occupied in this way, he passed into an adjoining saloon, which excited no suspicion, as he was still visible through the open doors by which the apartments communicated with each other. A burning censer stood in the passage, and as it was fed by the attendants, threw up such clouds of incense as obscured his movements from the soldiers. Under this friendly veil he succeeded in making his escape by a secret passage, which communicated with a large earthen pipe formerly used to bring water to the palace. Here he remained till nightfall, when, taking advantage of the obscurity, he found his way into the suburbs, and sought a shelter in the cottage of one of his father's vassals. The Tepanic monarch, enraged at this repeated disappointment, ordered instant pursuit. A price was set on the head of the royal fugitive. Whoever should take him, dead or alive, was promised, however humble his degree, the hand of a noble lady, and an ample domain along with it. Troops of armed men were ordered to scour the country in every direction. In the course of the search, the cottage in which the prince had taken refuge was entered. But he fortunately escaped detection by being hid under a heap of margay fibres used for manufacturing cloth. As this was no longer a proper place for concealment, he sought a retreat in the mountainous and woody district, lying between the borders of his own state and Tlaxcala. Here he led a wretched, wandering life, exposed to all the inclemencies of the weather, hiding himself in deep thickets and caverns, and stealing out at night to satisfy the cravings of appetite, while he was kept in constant alarm by the activity of his pursuers, always hovering on his track. On one occasion he sought refuge from them among a small party of soldiers who proved friendly to him, and concealed him in a large drum around which they were dancing. At another time he was just able to turn the crest of a hill, as his enemies were climbing it on the other side, when he fell in with a girl who was reaping chian, a Mexican plant, the seed of which was much used in the drinks of the country. He persuaded her to cover him up with the stalks she had been cutting. 
When his pursuers came up and inquired if she had seen the fugitive, the girl coolly answered that she had, and pointed out a path as the one he had taken. Notwithstanding the high rewards offered, Nesahualcoyotl seems to have incurred no danger from treachery. Such was the general attachment felt to himself and his house. "'Would you not deliver up the prince if he came in your way?' he inquired of a young peasant, who was unacquainted with his person. "'Not I,' replied the other. "'What, not for a fair lady's hand and a rich dowry beside?' rejoined the prince, at which the other only shook his head and laughed. On more than one occasion his faithful people submitted to torture, and even to lose their lives, rather than disclose the place of his retreat.' However gratifying such proofs of loyalty might be to his feelings, the situation of the prince in these mountain solitudes became every day more distressing. It gave a still keener edge to his own sufferings, to witness those of the faithful followers who chose to accompany him in his wanderings. "'Leave me,' he would say to them, "'to my fate. Why should you throw away your own lives for one whom fortune is never weary of persecuting?' Most of the great Tescucan chiefs had consulted their interests by a timely adhesion to the usurper, but some still clung to their prince, preferring prescription and death itself, rather than desert him in his extremity. In the meantime his friends at a distance were active in measures for his relief. The oppressions of Mashtla and his growing empire had caused general alarm in the surrounding states, who recalled the mild rule of the Tescucan princes. A coalition was formed, a plan of operations concerted, and on the day appointed for a general rising, Nesahualcoyotl found himself at the head of a force sufficiently strong to face his Tepanic adversaries. An engagement came on in which the latter were totally discomfited, and the victorious prince, receiving everywhere on his route the homage of his joyful subjects, entered his capital, not like a prescribed outcast, but as the rightful heir, and saw himself once more enthroned in the halls of his fathers. Soon after he united his forces with the Mexicans, long disgusted with the arbitrary conduct of Mashtla. The allied powers, after a series of bloody engagements with the usurper, routed him under the walls of his own capital. He fled to the baths, whence he was dragged out and sacrificed with the usual cruel ceremonies of the Aztecs. The royal city of Azcapotzalco was razed to the ground, and the wasted territory was henceforth reserved as the great slave market for the nations of Anahuac. These events were succeeded by the remarkable league among the three powers of Tezcuco, Mexico, and Tlacopan, of which some account has been given in the previous chapter. The first measure of Nesahualcoyotl, on returning to his dominions, was a general amnesty. It was his maxim that a monarch might punish, but revenge was unworthy of him. In the present instance he was averse even to punish, and not only freely pardoned his rebel nobles, but conferred on some, who had most deeply offended, posts of honour and confidence. Such conduct was doubtless politic, especially as their alienation was owing, probably, much more to fear of the usurper than to any disaffection towards himself. But there are some acts of policy which a magnanimous spirit only can execute. 
The restored monarch next set about repairing the damages sustained under the late misrule, and reviving, or rather remodelling, the various departments of government. He framed a concise but comprehensive code of laws, so well suited, it was thought, to the exigencies of the times, that it was adopted as their own by the two other members of the Triple Alliance. He divided the burden of government among a number of departments, as the Council of War, the Council of Finance, the Council of Justice. This last was a court of supreme authority, both in civil and criminal matters, receiving appeals from the lower tribunals of the provinces, which were obliged to make a full report, every four months, or eighty days, of their own proceedings to this higher judicature. In all these bodies a certain number of citizens were allowed to have seats with the nobles and professional dignitaries. There was, however, another body, a council of state, for aiding the king in the dispatch of business, and advising him in matters of importance, which was drawn altogether from the highest order of chiefs. It consisted of fourteen members, and they had seats provided for them at the royal table. Lastly, there was an extraordinary tribunal, called the Council of Music, but which, differing from the import of its name, was devoted to the encouragement of science and art. Works on astronomy, chronology, history, or any other science, were required to be submitted to its judgment before they could be made public. This censorial power was of some moment, at least with regard to the historical department, where the willful perversion of truth was made a capital offence by the bloody code of Nesahualcoyotl. Yet a Tescucan author must have been a bungler who could not elude a conviction under the cloudy veil of hieroglyphics. This body, which was drawn from the best instructed persons in the kingdom, with little regard to rank, had supervision of all the productions of art, and of the nicer fabrics. It decided on the qualifications of the professors in the various branches of science, on the fidelity of their instructions to their pupils, the deficiency of which was severely punished, and it instituted examinations of these latter. In short, it was a general board of education for the country. On stated days, historical compositions and poems treating of moral or traditional topics were recited before it by their authors. Seats were provided for the three crowned heads of the empire, who deliberated with the other members on the respective merits of the pieces, and distributed prizes of value to the successful competitors. The influence of this academy must have been most propitious to the capital, which became the nursery not only of such sciences as could be compassed by the scholarship of the period, but of various useful and ornamental arts. Its historians, orators, and poets were celebrated throughout the country. Its archives, for which accommodation were provided in the royal palace, were stored with the records of primitive ages. Its idiom, more polished than the Mexican, was indeed the purest of all the Nahuatlac dialects, and continued, long after the conquest, to be that in which the best productions of the native races were composed. Tezcuco claimed the glory of being the Athens of the Western world. Among the most illustrious of her bards was the emperor himself, for the Tezcucan writers claim this title for their chief as head of the imperial alliance. He doubtless appeared as a competitor before that very academy where he so often sat as a critic, 
but the hours of the Tescucan monarch were not all passed in idle dalliance with the muse, nor in the sober contemplations of philosophy, as at a later period. In the freshness of youth and early manhood he led the allied armies in their annual expeditions, which were certain to result in a wider extent of territory to the empire. In the intervals of peace he fostered those productive arts which are the surest sources of public prosperity. He encouraged agriculture above all, and there was scarcely a spot so rude, or a steep so inaccessible, as not to confess the power of cultivation. The land was covered with a busy population, and towns and cities sprung up in places since deserted, or dwindled into miserable villages. From resources thus enlarged by conquest and domestic industry, the monarch drew the means for the large consumption of his own numerous household, and for the costly works which he executed for the convenience and embellishment of the capital. He refined it with stately edifices for his nobles, whose constant attendance he was anxious to secure at his court. He erected a magnificent pile of buildings, which might serve both for a royal residence and for the public offices. It extended from east to west twelve hundred and thirty-four yards, and from north to south nine hundred and seventy-eight. It was encompassed by a wall of unburnt bricks and cement, six feet wide and nine high, for one half of the circumference, and fifteen feet high for the other half. Within this enclosure were two courts. The outer one was used as the great market-place of the city, and continued to be so until long after the conquest. The interior court was surrounded by the council chambers and halls of justice. There were also accommodations there for the foreign ambassadors, and a spacious saloon with apartments opening into it, for men of science and poets, who pursued their studies in this retreat, or met together to hold converse under its marble porticoes. In this quarter also were kept the public archives, which fared better under the Indian dynasty than they have since under their European successors. Adjoining this court were the apartments of the king, including those for the royal harem, as liberally supplied with beauties as that of an eastern sultan. Their walls were encrusted with alabasters and richly tinted stucco, or hung with gorgeous tapestries of variegated featherwork. They led through long arcades and through intricate labyrinths of shrubbery, into gardens where baths and sparkling fountains were overshadowed by tall groves of cedar and cypress. The basins of water were well stocked with fish of various kinds, and the aviaries with birds glowing in all the gaudy plumage of the tropics. Many birds and animals, which could not be obtained alive, were represented in gold and silver so skilfully as to have furnished the great naturalist Hernandez with models. Accommodations on a princely scale were provided for the sovereigns of Mexico and Tlacopan when they visited the court. The whole of this lordly pile contained three hundred apartments, some of them fifty yards square. The height of the building is not mentioned. It was probably not great, but supplied the requisite room by the immense extent of ground which it covered. The interior was doubtless constructed of light materials, especially of the rich woods, which in that country are remarkable when polished for the brilliancy and variety of their colours. 
that the more solid materials of stone and stucco were also liberally employed is proved by the remains at the present day, remains which have furnished an inexhaustible quarry for the churches and other edifices since erected by the Spaniards on the site of the ancient city. We are not informed of the time occupied in building this palace, but two hundred thousand workmen, it is said, were employed on it. However this may be, it is certain that the Tescucan monarchs, like those of Asia and ancient Egypt, had the control of immense masses of men, and would sometimes turn the whole population of a conquered city, including the women, into the public works. The most gigantic monuments of architecture which the world has witnessed would never have been reared by the hands of freemen. Adjoining the palace were buildings for the king's children, who, by his various wives, amounted to no less than sixty sons and fifty daughters. Here they were instructed in all the exercises and accomplishments suited to their station, comprehending what would scarcely find a place in a royal education on the other side of the Atlantic, the arts of working in metals, jewellery, and feather mosaic. Once in every four months, the whole household, not excepting the youngest, and including all the officers and attendants on the king's person, assembled in a grand saloon of the palace, to listen to a discourse from an orator, probably one of the priesthood. The princes on this occasion were all dressed in Neken, the coarsest manufacture of the country. The preacher began by enlarging on the obligations of morality and of respect for the gods, especially important in persons whose rank gave such additional weight to example. He occasionally seasoned his homily with a pertinent application to his audience, if any member of it had been guilty of a notorious delinquency. From this wholesome admonition the monarch himself was not exempted, and the orator boldly reminded him of his paramount duty to show respect for his own laws. The king, so far from taking umbrage, received the lesson with humility, and the audience, we are assured, were often melted into tears by the eloquence of the preacher. The fondness of Nesahualcoyotl for magnificence was shown in his numerous villas, which were embellished with all that could make a rural retreat delightful. His favourite residence was at Tescotzinco, a conical hill about two leagues from the capital. It was laid out in terraces or hanging gardens, having a flight of steps, five hundred and twenty in number, many of them hewn in the natural porphyry. In the garden on the summit was a reservoir of water, fed by an aqueduct that was carried over hill and valley for several miles on huge buttresses of masonry. A large rock stood in the midst of this basin, sculptured with the hieroglyphics representing the years of the reign of Nesahualcoyotl and his principal achievements in each. On a lower level were three other reservoirs, in each of which stood a marble statue of a woman emblematic of the three states of the empire. Another tank contained a winged lion, cut out of the solid rock, bearing in his mouth the portrait of the emperor. His likeness had been executed in gold, wood, featherwork, and stone, but this was the only one which pleased him. From these copious basins the water was distributed in numerous channels through the gardens, or was made to tumble over the rocks in cascades, shedding refreshing dews on the flowers and odoriferous shrubs below. 
In the depths of this fragrant wilderness, marble porticoes and pavilions were erected, and baths excavated in the solid porphyry. The visitor descended by steps cut in the living stone, and polished so bright as to reflect like mirrors. Towards the base of the hill, in the midst of cedar groves, whose gigantic branches threw a refreshing coolness over the verdure in the sultriest seasons of the year, rose the royal villa, with its light arcades and airy halls, drinking in the sweet perfumes of the gardens. Here the monarch often retired to throw off the burden of state, and refresh his wearied spirits in the society of his favourite wives, reposing during the noontide heats in the embowering shades of his paradise, or mingling in the cool of the evening in their festive sports and dances. Here he entertained his imperial brothers of Mexico and Tlacopan, and followed the hardier pleasures of the chase in the noble woods that stretch for miles around his villa, flourishing in all their primeval majesty. Here, too, he often repaired, in the latter days of his life, when age had tempered ambition and cooled the ardour of his blood, to pursue in solitude the studies of philosophy and gather wisdom from meditation. It was not his passion to hoard. He dispensed his revenues munificently, seeking out poor but meritorious objects on whom to bestow them. He was particularly mindful of disabled soldiers, and those who had in any way sustained loss in the public service, and in case of their death, extended assistance to their surviving families. Open mendicity was a thing he would never tolerate, but chastised it with exemplary rigour. It would be incredible that a man of the enlarged mind and endowments of Nesahualcoyotl should acquiesce in the sordid superstitions of his countrymen, and still more in the sanguinary rites borrowed by them from the Aztecs. In truth, his humane temper shrunk from these cruel ceremonies, and he strenuously endeavoured to recall his people to the more pure and simple worship of the ancient Toltecs. A circumstance produced a temporary change in his conduct. He had been married some years, but was not blessed with issue. The priests represented that it was owing to his neglect of the gods of his country, and that his only remedy was to propitiate them by human sacrifice. The king reluctantly consented, and the altars once more smoked with the blood of slaughtered captives. But it was all in vain, and he indignantly exclaimed, These idols of wood and stone can neither hear nor feel, much less could they make the heavens and the earth, and man the lord of it. These must be the work of the all-powerful unknown God, creator of the universe, on whom alone I must rely for consolation and support. He then withdrew to his royal palace of Tezcotzinco, where he remained forty days, fasting and praying at stated hours, and offering up no other sacrifice than the sweet incense of copal, and aromatic herbs and gums. At the expiration of this time he is said to have been comforted by a vision assuring him of the success of his petition. At all events such proved to be the fact, and this was followed by the cheering intelligence of the triumph of his arms in a quarter where he had lately experienced some humiliating reverses. Greatly strengthened in his former religious convictions, he now openly professed his faith, and was more earnest 
to wean his subjects from their degrading superstitions, and to substitute nobler and more spiritual conceptions of the deity. He built a temple in the usual pyramidal form, and on the summit a tower nine stories high, to represent the nine heavens. A tenth was surmounted by a roof painted black, and profusely gilded with stars on the outside, and encrusted with metals and precious stones within. He dedicated this to the unknown God, the cause of causes. It seems probable, from the emblem on the tower, as well as from the complexion of his verses, as we shall see, that he mingled with his reverence for the supreme, the astral worship which existed among the Toltecs. Various musical instruments were placed on the top of the tower, and the sound of them, accompanied by the ringing of a sonorous metal struck by a mallet, summoned the worshippers to prayers at regular seasons. No image was allowed in the edifice as unsuited to the invisible God, and the people were expressly prohibited from profaning the altars with blood, or any other sacrifice than that of the perfume of flowers and sweet-scented gums. The remainder of his days was chiefly spent in his delicious solitudes of Tezcocinco, where he devoted himself to astronomical and probably astrological studies, and to meditation on his immortal destiny, giving utterance to his feelings in songs, or rather hymns, of much solemnity and pathos. At length, about the year 1470, Nezahualcoyotl, full of years and honours, felt himself drawing near his end. Almost half a century had elapsed since he mounted the throne of Tezcuco. He had found his kingdom dismembered by faction, and bowed to the dust beneath the yoke of a foreign tyrant. He had broken that yoke, and breathed new life into the nation, renewed its ancient institutions, extended wide its domain, had seen it flourishing in all the activity of trade and agriculture, gathering strength from its enlarged resources, and daily advancing higher and higher in the great march of civilization. All this he had seen, and might fairly attribute no small portion of it to his own wise and beneficent rule. His long and glorious day was now drawing to its close, and he contemplated the event with the same serenity which he had shown under the clouds of its morning, and in its meridian splendour. A short time before his death he gathered around him those of his children, in whom he most confided, his chief counsellors, the ambassadors of Mexico and Tlacopan, and his little son, the heir to the crown, his only offspring by the queen. He was then not eight years old, but had already given, as far as so tender a blossom might, the rich promise of future excellence. After tenderly embracing the child, the dying monarch threw over him the robes of sovereignty. He then gave audience to the ambassadors, and when they had retired, made the boy repeat the substance of the conversation. He followed this by such counsels as were suited to his comprehension, and which, when remembered through the long vista of after years, would serve as lights to guide him in his government of the kingdom. He besought him not to neglect the worship of the unknown God, regretting that he himself had been unworthy to know him, and intimating his conviction that the time would come when he should be known and worshipped throughout the land. 
he next addressed himself to that one of his sons in whom he placed the greatest trust, and whom he had selected as the guardian of the realm. From this hour, he said to him, you will fill the place that I have filled, a father to this child. You will teach him to live as he ought, and by your counsels he will rule over the empire. Stand in his place and be his guide, till he shall be of age to govern for himself. Then, turning to his other children, he admonished them to live united with one another, and to show all loyalty to their prince, who, though a child, already manifested a discretion far above his years. Be true to him, he added, and he will maintain you in your rights and dignities. Feeling his end approaching, he exclaimed, Do not bewail me with idle lamentations, but sing the song of gladness, and show a courageous spirit, that the nations I have subdued may not believe you disheartened, but may feel that each one of you is strong enough to keep them in obedience. The undaunted spirit of the monarch shone forth even in the agonies of death. That stout heart, however, melted as he took leave of his children and friends, weeping tenderly over them, while he bade each a last adieu. When they had withdrawn, he ordered the officers of the palace to allow no one to enter it again. Soon after he expired, in the seventy-second year of his age, and the forty-third of his reign. Thus died the greatest monarch, and perhaps the best, who ever sat upon an Indian throne. His character is delineated with tolerable impartiality by his kinsman, the Tescucan chronicler. He was wise, valiant, liberal, and when we consider the magnanimity of his soul, the grandeur and success of his enterprises, his deep policy as well as daring, we must admit him to have far surpassed every other prince and captain of this new world. He had few failings himself, and rigorously punished those of others. He preferred the public to his private interest, was most charitable in his nature, often buying articles at double their worth of poor and honest persons, and giving them away again to the sick and infirm. In seasons of scarcity he was particularly bountiful, remitting the taxes of his vassals, and supplying their wants from the royal granaries. He put no faith in the idolatrous worship of the country. He was well instructed in moral science, and sought, above all things, to obtain light for knowing the true God. He believed in one God only, the Creator of heaven and earth, by whom we have our being, who never revealed himself to us in human form, nor in any other, with whom the souls of the virtuous are to dwell after death, while the wicked will suffer pains unspeakable. He invoked the Most High as Him by whom we live, and who has all things in Himself. He recognized the Son for His Father, and the earth for His Mother. He taught His children not to confide in idols, and only to conform to the outward worship of them from deference to public opinion. If He could not entirely abolish human sacrifices derived from the Aztecs, He at least restricted them to slaves and captives. I have occupied so much space with this illustrious prince that but little remains for his son and successor, Nezawalpilli. I have thought better, in our narrow limits, to present a complete view of a single epoch, the most interesting in the Tescucan annals, than to spread the inquiries over a broader but comparatively barren field. Yet Nezawalpilli, the heir to the crown, 
was a remarkable person, and his reign contains many incidents which I regret to be obliged to pass over in silence. Nesawalpili resembled his father in his passion for astronomical studies, and is said to have had an observatory on one of his palaces. He was devoted to war in his youth, but as he advanced in years, resigned himself to a more indolent way of life, and sought his chief amusement in the pursuit of his favourite science, or in the soft pleasures of the sequestered gardens of Tescotinco. This quiet life was ill-suited to the turbulent temper of the times, and of his Mexican rival Montezuma. The distant provinces fell off from their allegiance, the army relaxed its discipline, disaffection crept into its ranks, and the wily Montezuma, partly by violence and partly by stratagems unworthy of a king, succeeded in plundering his brother monarch of some of his most valuable domains. Then it was that he arrogated to himself the title and supremacy of emperor, hitherto borne by the Tescucan princes as head of the alliance. Such is the account given by the historians of that nation, who in this way explain the acknowledged superiority of the Aztec sovereign, both in territory and consideration, on the landing of the Spaniards. These misfortunes pressed heavily on the spirits of Nesualpili. Their effect was increased by certain gloomy prognostics of a near calamity which was to overwhelm the country. He withdrew to his retreat to brood in secret over his sorrows. His health rapidly declined, and in the year 1515, at the age of 52, he sunk into the grave, happy at least that by his timely death he escaped witnessing the fulfilment of his own predictions in the ruin of his country and the extinction of the Indian dynasties for ever. In reviewing the brief sketch here presented of the Tescucan monarchy, we are strongly impressed with the conviction of its superiority in all the great features of civilization over the rest of Anahuac. The Mexicans showed a similar proficiency, no doubt, in the mechanic arts and even in mathematical science, but in the science of government, in legislation, in the speculative doctrines of a religious nature, in the more elegant pursuits of poetry, eloquence, and whatever depended on refinement of taste and a polished idiom, they confessed themselves inferior, by resorting to their rivals for instruction, and citing their works as the masterpieces of their tongue. The best histories, the best poems, the best code of laws, the purest dialect, were all allowed to be Tescucan. What was the actual amount of the Tescucan civilization? It is not easy to determine, with the imperfect light afforded us. It was certainly far below anything which the word conveys, measured by a European standard. In some of the arts, and in any walk of science, they could only have made, as it were, a beginning. But they had begun in the right way, and already showed a refinement in sentiment and manners, a capacity for receiving instruction, which, under good auspices, might have led them on to indefinite improvement. Unhappily they were fast falling under the dominion of the warlike Aztecs, and that people repaid the benefits received from their more polished neighbours by imparting to them their own ferocious superstition, which, falling like a mildew on the land, would soon have blighted its rich blossoms of promise, and turned even its fruits to dust and ashes. 
End of Book One, Chapter Six.